Welcome to AAF District Forecast, the show that puts you in touch with advertising leaders, emerging talent, and industry news from across Florida and the Caribbean. And now, here are your hosts, District 4 Governor John Ruff and Communications Co-Chair Jacob Edenfield. Welcome to Episode 2. we got a lot of content to cover, so let's get to the news. Clubs all across the district are ramping up for their year, and there's a good chance you'll see some content served up to you as to why you should become a member. And, you know, you should totally join us, because we're awesome, and we do great things for the industry. Visit aafdistrict4.org to find out more. The Angel Award call for entry deadline has been extended to August 12th, so enter your best public service work and show us how well you did good. Visit theangelaward.com and enter right now, or after the podcast. And our free monthly speaker series called Attitude resumes on August 26th. This month, we're featuring tips on creative recruitment and how you can land that dream job. Find out more at our AAF District 4 Facebook page and at our website, aafdistrict4.org. And now, here's my co-host, Jacob Edenfield. Hey, everybody. This month, I'm speaking with Mark Unger of Push about their recent work that won at the National Addies. How's it going, Mark? Great. How you doing? <laughs> doing well. Awesome. All right. So first question, Mark, um, do all dogs go to heaven? Uh, I, I, yes, I love dogs and I think they all do go to heaven. I would hope so. Like all of them? <laughs> like every single one. Every single one of them. Okay, great. Cool. Well, this interview is going to go awesome. then. <laughs> okay. So um, I did want to ask you about the paperless menu project that recently won a national Addy. Could you just give me kind of a rundown for someone who hasn't seen it? Yeah, sure. So th- this project was a really interesting project for us because it was really born out of a need. You know, we love uh, creating work that has a purpose and, and, and a use to it. We are obviously a traditional ad agency in a lot of the senses, but we're also a branding firm and we also are experts in a lot of different industries that that we've worked on for so long and one of those industries is is restaurants and when the pandemic hit you know there was a there was a need to really support the restaurant industry as a whole and us being experts in that space we felt a responsibility to really reach out to not just our clients but the industry at large and one of the ideas that we had was to develop a paperless menu product that restaurants, whether you're a very small restaurant or a very large restaurant chain, you could easily within minutes go to a website and basically input your menu and it will shoot out a QR code and you would have immediately a digital version of your menu. But what made this project unique was that we knew that, you know, there was a lot of places that were putting basically PDFs of their menu just on a link and then having a QR code. That was like the first thing that people did, you know, to kind of keep customers safe. But that was a really terrible experience. I don't know if you've ever had a menu in a restaurant. You were going to go to a restaurant, you pulled up the website, and then you got this this PDF that it's a printed menu and you're sitting there pinching, you're zooming in, you're trying to find what that restaurant offers. So we wanted to create a, a, a very mobile friendly experience and design it for your phone so that it could actually, you know, eventually replace a printed menu, which would be great, not only for the, the consumer, the environment, for the, you know, the, the cost for the operators. So that's essentially what the project was. It was, a, it was our own personal solution to a 
a very large need during the pandemic to help support an entire industry. And I think what made it so unique is that designed and developed it in like record time. And we work with a partner called Taproot to help with some of the development. And we developed some of it internally ourselves and, and launched the brand, got it up there and immediately started helping, you know, restaurants. That sounds incredible. Give me a sense of how quickly it went from idea to execution. I think when we originally thought about it immediately, I think within two weeks, we had created an LLC for it. We had identified a partner to work with. We had already established the brand look and feel. We had, you know, basically established the pitch, if you will, what what the, the user case was, the, what we call the MVP, the minimal viable product. So I, I think within two weeks of a lot of hustling, we had already got really strong foundation for an entire company, you know, and then the following subsequent weeks, we identified a merchant partner to help with payment processing. We uh, hyped identified some technology to help generate and, and fire up the CMS, you know, the individual CMSs. We identified a QR code partner. We built the UI, you know, I'd say six to eight weeks from the day we thought of the idea to the first in-market demo. And then I think another couple of weeks after that, we were, were up and running. So it was extremely fast, but we have so many talented people there that have the ability to cross over and help in all aspects of that process. That's really what makes push unique, makes us not, you know, just a place you come to get ads created or create, you know, design or, you know, whatever. We, we really have the whole breadth of what you need to solve problems. That sounds like a pretty Herculean effort and not a lot of time. Had Push ever launched, a, I guess, a true product prior to Paperless Menu? I, I think we have dabbled in different tools and, and things like that that we've tried to play with in the past, but nothing specifically specific that I can think of like this. And we're always looking for opportunity you know, as a company to try to invent and create things and use our skill set for good. I can't think of anything specific in the past that was quite like this. Yeah, it sounds pretty unique. Take me back to day one, like when, when the idea was born, kind of what was the inspiration? What was the background? Around that time, I mean, obviously everything was so crazy last year, you know, March, April, May, and as the pandemic is rolling out and we were having so many conversations, we had some very big restaurant brands, uh, you know, Olive Garden, Tijuana Flats, Sunny's Barbecue, Yard House. So we had... We were in the middle of this kind of this really unique situation, this, you know, very scary situation for a lot of people. And we just wanted to help, you know, we wanted to be able to give support to our partners and to our clients. We didn't want to sit back and wait and watch. And one of the things that we did a lot was menus. So uh, we were putting together these lists of ideas that we could help build things for our clients, help with, you know, technology for online ordering or pickup, signage and communicate safe distances. So we were building all those things and we were, you know, operating at the speed of light just to help them stay open because, uh, you know, restaurant industry was, a you know, a crucial industry. I remember when we were 
kind of thinking through all those lists, you know, it dawned on us is like, we have three clients that we do menu design specifically for, and they don't need that right now, but what they do need is another solution that's safer. It was kind of all in the mix of, you know, just coming up with ideas of how to, you know, support our partners and our, and our clients. That sounds like one of those classic, you're working through a problem for one or more clients and you just have one of those sigh, oh, I just wish we could do X, Y, or Z. And then you're like, wait, we actually could do X, Y, or Z. Was it one of those types of situations? Yeah, I, I think it was. I think I think there was an aha moment there for sure. And then it was, you know, when you have a really good idea is everyone just kind of starts confirming it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I just went to this restaurant the other day and, you know, the, the experience was horrible. Or I have a friend who works at a restaurant and they don't have menus right now. So it was like, you start hearing all these things and you're like, well, we can solve that problem. We can solve that problem. And then, and then everyone is just like, well, let's add that to these, the specs and let's make sure we have a solution for that. And lo and behold, then it was just a matter of logistics and scheduling and getting the right people in the room and keeping focus on, on the task and then launching. Yeah, I love that story. And I also love the the solution and just the simplicity and polish of it. Tell me about being in the middle of it. You've got this truncated timeline. You've got this great idea and it turned out so well. Why? You know, one of the things that as soon as we started working on it, we we're like, this cannot be a project that is, you know, behind the scenes and we'll get to it when we get to it kind of issue. That was a big part of it. So as, as owners, John and I, you know, sat down and said, if we're going to do this, it can't just be something that we'll get up in six to eight months because it wasn't going to help anybody at that point or people would already have found a different solution or they would have moved on to the next issue that they're going to have to deal with post pandemic. So we knew that it was very, very time sensitive. And so we put a lot of emphasis on making sure that it got done. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you you mentioned your co-owner, John. Give me, I don't know, give me some insight into the origin stories of Push. Sure. Yeah. So this is our going to be our 25th year in uh, in October. We were founded on Halloween. John is one of the founding partners of Push, and it was really born out of the idea of creating a really strong creative agency in Orlando. You know, there was definitely a void for that at the time. What was really unique about it was kind of its path of growth. So our first big client before I was part of Push was Disney Recruitment, and it was it was a really interesting client because they essentially showed push that brands are really built kind of from the inside out and that was a really unique lesson at that time and definitely became a part of the DNA of push and helped establish the culture of push because we weren't, you know, just filling media holes right out of the gate. Like so many other agencies were, we were really kind of trained to think about brands holistically thinking about, you know, people first experiences versus products and, you know, kind of dollars and cents. Uh, which we still find very important and we're still a part of, but, you know, it really, it really allowed us to kind of approach creative differently. And I think it was a big part of our success. And, you know, I joined in 2002 and started there as an intern over the years, helped, you know, build push with John and, and then eventually became a partner and chief creative officer. And now, you know, the two of us, you know, run the agency and we do about half branding and then half marketing and digital and advertising so that's kind of our mix and, and our primary kind of three verticals that we specialize in. I guess you could say we do all types of work and have done all types of, of companies, but we do a lot of restaurants, 
obviously healthcare and higher education and retail as well are kind of our main areas of expertise. You mentioned Orlando back in 2002 versus Orlando now. So I have no frame of reference because I didn't move to Florida until 2016. Give me when you saw things change or what you saw change. You know, there was this always, if you looked at a map, there was you know, a map of creativity, I guess you could say. You know, there'd be this giant pin of a Mickey Mouse ear on Orlando. And whether that's true or not, it was the thing that we owned. And out of that came really awesome stuff. Like you got great animators, you got great artists, you got all these, you know, great theme park designers, you got all these really cool creators out of that space. But it was really hard to prove to anybody else that anything else could happen here of, of notoriety, right? But as things change and, and, and people start to get better at what they did and, uh, you know, competed against each other, and that's where the Addies really came into play in, in my career was that it really became a, a you know benchmark locally for who was doing what and how you know and and, and who was good and, and who was really trying to push the envelope and you know over time you started to see you know just in that little show you would start to see winners that were a little bigger appeal you know you started to see bigger brands come through that show and, and that's just a small indicator but then you also have other things like you know restaurants that would come up that people you know that were of notoriety architecture you know and, and other things that would start to change in, in, in Orlando. And, and you started to feel the energy, you know, start to change um, the art scene, the music scene. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it all from being a kid growing up here all the way to being a professional. And, and now it's uh, it's exciting because I do think there is a tremendous growth opportunity that's going to happen here for the creative, you know, world. And I think it's going to be a great place to do it. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned the local American Advertising Awards. From what I have seen, the Orlando market is an incredibly competitive local show. So it's funny to hear how it was. It wasn't for lack of the talented people there. It was really just a matter of how potential clients, prospects, and maybe even the folks who were in Orlando perceived themselves. That was the barrier. You know, I, I imagine every city, I don't really have a lot of context about other cities. Um, you know, I've pretty much just been in Orlando, but I can just see from our own wave of creativity. You know, I think people here want to be competitive against each other. They want to do really great work. Um, they want to grow the city holistically and push made it, you know, what, one of the biggest things I did when I came in as the chief creative officer, I guess eight, eight or nine years ago, I don't know the exact time, but I said, we're going to enter the Addies every year regardless of what happens, because up until that point, we would sometimes enter it and sometimes not. We would say, you know, like, do we want to put the effort out this year or no? Do we want to do other things or no? And it would become this debate like every, you know, month before the entries was due. And, and I said, you know, let's just commit to it because we're not only just committing to collecting our body of work and sharing it with everyone else, but we're also committing to all the other people that are competing that there's always going to be a level of quality of work in that show that they had to step up to. And I think that small little gesture or move has really forced a lot of companies to step it up because they know that no matter what happens, at least push will be there. So let's go at them. Let me ask you one final question, Mark. What's next for you guys? So I think, um, you know, we really liked making things that's kind of our mo and we like and that was what's so great about the paperless menu experience was that we had the ability to you know create something that was different and and helpful and unique so i think we're going to constantly kind of seek out projects and opportunities that allow us to use 
all of these, you know, these great aspects of this place that we created. Those are always the funnest projects. Those are always the most rewarding projects. And we really are excited about that. So it's really just about finding, um, you know, partners uh, and people that are going to give us the opportunity to um, be the very best we can be and, and people that really get it and, and, and know how to use an agency like Push to, to their advantage. And so we'll constantly kind of seek those people out. We'll constantly try to, you know, um, look for opportunities to create really interesting things and, you know, and work with really amazing people. It sounds like a recipe for success. Maybe. So far, so, <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say so. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you joining us on this episode of AAF District Forecast. Congratulations again to you and the Push team on your work at the National show and we look forward to seeing what you got for us next year okay thanks thanks so much thanks for taking the time really appreciate it today i'm here with george zwerko he's an agency owner an aef tampa bay trustee he's held several positions at the district including nsac chair and now diversity and inclusion he's also the host of aef university welcome george hey thanks for you threw aef university in there i wasn't expecting that <laughs> yeah, i can be sneaky like that um tell us a bit about yourself uh, well, uh, I was born and raised in uh, New York City. I am a U.S. Army veteran. I've been in advertising for many, many, many years, um, mainly on the creative side. Uh, I have a love for strategy, research, and, and data, uh, which I think is why I lean toward multicultural marketing and, and cultural marketing. It's the, it's the sense that I get to learn about how people behave and think when they make consumer decisions. I live in Tampa, Florida now with my family. Uh, I have three sons uh, and a daughter. Uh, and I've been involved with AAF for, wow, um, 10 plus years. Can't really put my finger on it. It's been so long. What made you get involved with AAF? Um, you know, that's a great question. It was a, 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 ever since I've been in advertising and I've been in the Tampa community, um, I wanted to get involved with some sort of organization. I thought it was important. It's a, I think it's a way to to give back, it's a it's a great way to network. Uh, it's a great way to tap resources that you don't necessarily have available immediately. You know, so you you kind of build this network of like-minded people and thought leaders. And uh, I got involved with an organization called the Creative Club when I first came to Tampa. Just a, it was a basically a, another organization like AAF, but more focused on the creative community. And then uh, I started to learn a little bit about a little bit more about AAF, and then I was approached by someone to uh, consider uh, participating, but on a, on a board in a board position. So I, I decided to do that. The the position that was available to me was education chair, and I thought that was more in line with where my passion is: is education, uh, talking to students, looking at mentoring the up and coming, you know, creative people, and and. and uh, people who are looking to start a career in advertising. And so I, I, I said, so I took the position uh, and then immediately just stayed on and, and started doing a, a variety of different things. But that's why I got involved with NSAC. Uh, that's one of the, the first things I wanted to do when I joined AAF and, and, uh, and the opportunity finally presented itself a few years later. And I've done that. Uh, I've held that role for three years. I've done it three years. You know, now here I am doing diversity. So that leads me to my next question. Why diversity and inclusion? What what draws you to that? It's the premise in which my agency was started. So I, I started in advertising. I worked for a variety of different agencies, opened uh, my own ad agency in 2000. After we opened the agency, I had uh, a few clients that approached us. They were asking us for ways they could make their, their campaigns and their marketing messages more inclusive. They were looking to add diversity to their messaging. 
they felt an important need to reach out to particular audiences. They, they wanted to reach out to Hispanic audiences, uh, the black community. And when we were asked to do those things, it was very important for me that we do them correctly. We do them authentically. Uh, we make our messages relatable that when someone contacts or comes into contact with a particular brand, our clients, that you know, consumers feel that they are, um, they're included in that messaging, that they're just, they're, it's just not you know, a Band-Aid approach to speaking to a particular audience, that they do feel like they're being spoken to and not, you know, we're not like looking through them. And uh, so I started building a department within the agency that was going to be our multicultural group. And then in 2008, I decided to take uh, that department and create a independent multicultural ad agency, which became Roombo. And that started in uh, 2008. And now we're going into our 14th year. Wow, that's amazing. I bet when you started it and started offering the service, it was probably a breath of fresh air. And a lot of clients were like, where have you been my whole life? Um, some. <laughs> I, I, I think I think there's still, uh, uh, it's, it's funny how you would expect that to be a reaction you would expect from most clients. But uh, I think we still we still deal with uh, with a, a few a few clients that have or a few potential clients that don't really see the need or feel that the need is is or feel that that approach is really all that necessary. Um, you still get that whole total market. You know, let's just go ahead and check off the diversity box by including everybody. You know, let's let's create a campaign. Let's create a commercial where if I if I show everyone mixing and mingling and I and I show the uh, different ethnic groups and different races and people with different backgrounds that I'm 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 doing what I need to do to reach that particular audience. You know, obviously, we've been in this business a long time. That's driven by that's driven by management decisions. That's driven by budget. Uh, that's that's driven by uh, you know a not understanding a truly understanding the importance of creating something that is uh, culturally competent and I, and it, and it comes through a lot of education so I I feel in our business and you know, on the multicultural side unless you're talking directly to a big brand that has lots of marketing dollars to spend I think it's a tougher conversation to have because now you're asking someone to slice and dice. You know a, a budget and 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 you're trying to substantiate that ask in a way that's going to yield a result uh, and for some it's just this fear that they may not get the result they're looking for so it's a gamble and so there's a lot of education on our part when we're especially when we're dealing with with new clients or we're approaching a client or a potential client and we're and we're mining for business and we're trying to sell this idea that we, we need to create a campaign that's separate from the camp, current campaign you're running that speaks directly to certain audiences. And we don't we don't try to say to a brand or a client that we need to sell to everybody. You know, we, we, we there's, there's there's definitely marketing strategy behind all this. We're, we're going to advise that we speak to the audiences that utilize your brand and utilize your service. These, these are your customers that are out there. We're just shedding a light on that. You may have not known that or may not seen that, but you know, we're going to identify other audiences outside of your typical general market that buys your, they're your consumers, they're your customers. Yeah. So now I'm beginning to see where your passion for not only diversity and inclusion, but education comes into play. So tell us a little bit about your plans for the board year. Well, I was very excited when I was asked to uh, last year to participate on the diversity 
um, equity and inclusion committee to, to be a part of that. Just it goes back to my passion for what I do as a professional. So uh, we, we started coming up with a, with a great plan for what we were going to do last year and, and moving forward. And then I'm basically just taking what we started and continuing that mission and moving it forward. One of the big things for us is that we identify there's, there's two main things that we want to we want to focus on. You know, we want to we want to look at the advertising industry as a whole and what's happening within the industry. And what we, we what happens there is that we rarely see people of color, people with disabilities, members of LGBTQ+ community, cisgender women in it at the C-suite level. And why is that? You know, and so that and that and that's a big question. There's a variety of reasons why that happens. One of the things I think we should do, especially as the American Advertising Federation is figure out how we can change that. And then the other thing is, as advertising professionals, how do we help our clients identify that inclusivity, inclusivity in advertising is important? You know, there's tons of brands that are out there getting it wrong. And then successful brands are the ones that are out there looking to dismantle social exclusion by reaching, you know, the hearts of marginalized groups. So how do we celebrate the brands that are doing it right and using that as an example to help other brands do it right? Because it's, it's not hard to do but I think it's just being able to be a resource to, to clients as to how do we make that happen and how do we help them make that happen. So moving forward, I think, you know, we kind of have to take a step back. You know, we have to, we have to approach this as, I, I believe we've, we've always been there to provide some sort of, uh, to be some sort of resource when it comes to diversity. Uh, but I think we need to put a, a very sustainable and authentic program together that we can move forward for long-term success. So it's whatever we do now, it's, I, I, I think my approach and in, in with, the, with the team that we're putting together and with the other diversity chairs across the district is let's not just look at our year. Even if we don't launch a program at, at, the, at the local level, you're, you're setting up a foundation to move a program forward. And so let's look at this through a five-year lens. What, what does our program look like in five years? And are we hitting our mission? Are we are we helping the advertising industry and are we helping clients? If we let's let's achieve those two things by creating something that's sustainable. A lot of that is also looking at our leadership inside and outside of AAF. So one of the things I, I spoke to you, John, earlier about was uh, I want to put a, a committee together that's more of an advisory board for myself and for the other diversity chairs in the district. The committee is not going to be made up of members of AAF. I, I want outside thought leadership. So I'm looking at community leaders. Um, I'm looking at thought leaders, influencers, uh, entrepreneurs, anyone that represents a lot of the audiences that we are, are trying to uh, help feel included. Uh, I want I want that committee to make, be made up of that. I, I want that diversity in the committee because I think what they're going to do is they're going to help guide us so that we make sure that we're not looking at it through a single lens, but that we're actually looking you know this appropriately. Um, we're putting a program that is going to be sustainable. I, I think we're going to need that that support from a community level. That's really smart that you're seeking those outside opinions because it it does help so much. And it's interesting when I have these conversations with, it's funny, I have an ad agency and I have an advisory board <laughs> made up mm -hmm. of six, six people that are leaders in our community for that very reason. It's like I, when we, before we even present a campaign to a client, I run it by our, our advisory board so they could poke holes in it, <laughs> right? Because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that when we turn this over to the client, it is exactly what the client was looking for. 
um, sometimes we get too close to things, right? Looking at outside, uh, you know, some outside influences is always going to be best. The other, the other thing that I think is important as we look at, at, at this program is that it's, it's inclusive of not just people of color, but people with disabilities, cisgender women, LGBTQ+. I, you and I have even talked about the veteran community. Um, you know, just how do we develop a program that is inclusive of the, the variety of audiences that make up diversity and, and creates this cultural community that we're looking for? And then finally, one of the big things I think, and, and this is where it needs to begin, and, and we've already started to move that forward, is is getting our community together, our AF community together. Look, talking to all the DEI chairs across District Four. You know, what are you doing? How can we be supportive to your needs? Maybe you're doing something that we need to be doing at the district level. <clears throat> I mean, I'm really proud to be part of District Four because how many times do we come up with something in our district that national picks up? You know, so I, great ideas come from everywhere. So let's get our let's create a bigger community uh, across the board. Um, and that, that was kind of already put into motion last year, uh, so I just want to see that continue. So I've reached out already through uh, Do Slack to try to, to, to make that happen. Um, so that's, those are the four main things that I would like us to focus on. And so we're going to start with our uh, early August that we're trying to set up that, that D and I meet and greet. So I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this next question, but is the job for DNI ever done? You know, it... I don't think it's ever done. I think it has to be organic. It has to evolve. I think we're we're learning as we go. There's there's, I have a research team that we hire for the agency, and all we ever ask them to do is we we, our shop we we always come up with some question. We 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 want to learn more about behavior. We want to learn more about our consumer base. We want to learn more about why Hispanic consumers do one thing, why members of LGBTQ plus community, what, why, how do they consume goods? How do they consume media? You know, we're always trying to learn more and it's always the, the, the why. And so I have this research team and they'll do this, these deep dives into, uh, into the, the different questions that we're asking and then present that back to our team. And so we get together probably every month, once a month or so, uh, where a presentation is done for our team to just to always continue to learn. Um, and then we're always surprised by what we are learning and what we thought we knew and we didn't know, which is one of the reasons why I have an advisory board for our agencies, because you only know what you know. And, and, and if we're going to do this, and this is our mission, um, we want to make sure we do it right. Um, and we want to make sure that at the end of the day, it's, it's not our success. It's the success for our, our community that we're, we're serving. And finally, I just want to, you know, for organizations that are listening and, and, and want to incorporate their own DNI programs, what tips would you give to agency owners or, or any organizations who, who want to bring this on board? It starts from the, the top down. A lot, the, the biggest problem with DNI initiatives is that organizations will hire someone to be their their DNI director director of DNI VP of diversity they they they'll bring somebody on board and they say okay give me a program and the, and there's no support from the top down any any diversity and inclusion program that's implemented needs to have that support you need to walk to walk talk to talk because what happens is and and the problem that exists within a lot of organizations is that you could implement a program but if you don't have the support of the other managers if you don't have the support at the suite level, the C-suite level, 
the mistakes continue to happen. Um, and what we're trying to do as an organization is just try to create a community where people feel valued, where people can advance, just like everyone else, where it's regardless of the color of my skin, uh, whether or not I am male, female, whether or not I identify LGBTQ+, none of that should matter. I should be able to advance and, and, and feel like I'm valued and contributing to uh, the success of the company I work for. And so programs that are implemented, sometimes they fall apart when they're not supported at every level within the organization. So that's where the difficulty comes in. So uh, I, I think it's important that when we do implement or when a company does implement a, a diversity and inclusion program, that they get the buy-in, they get the support, and that they have those managers uh, hold people accountable, that employees are held accountable, the programs held accountable so that they can, they can have that future success. And sometimes it's just, it's really seeing the world through the eyes of everyone. You know, find out how the world works from their point of view. You know, what are their pain points? You know, what, what are the things that make a difference in someone's life? You know, it's really all at the end of the day about just being human. Yeah. And I think going back to what you said, it's a genuine, authentic desire for this to be successful from the top down is, is really what's going to make it keep going. And, and, you know, like we said, the job is never truly done. It's not. And it's, it's meant to feel inclusive on all levels. <clears throat> you don't want to create a program where, you know, you know how people get. You don't want to create a program where someone's going to say, oh, okay, you're force feeding this. And now I have to fall in line with this particular program. It, it needs to feel inclusive across the board. It needs to feel like it's, we're creating a culture that's going to be a healthy culture. And what's great about creating that type of, that type of environment <clears throat> is when you look at it from recruitment and retention, um, you're, you're eventually going to see that your organization is going to weed out the staff and the team and the, and the individuals that have been holding the company back because a strong diversity and inclusion program always leads to a successful organization from, from, from a, re, a return on investment, from a profitability standpoint. Companies grow. They succeed. There's stats out there that prove that those companies make more revenue. They last long. Their companies become sustainable, successful, because they implement a healthy culture and a, and a strong environment for their employees. We've been a part of uh, a couple of different projects where we've helped companies create corporate cultures. Uh, you know, maybe there wasn't one that existed, but we wanted to create something that was going to unify people. And the retention levels are insane. When you go in and you try to hire new employees, you're finding that the employees want to work with you. They align their values with your values. So you're now you're recruiting stronger, better people for your, for your organization. Um, it's just always a good thing from an operational standpoint. Um, so it's not only just it's a healthy environment for the employees, it's healthy for the company as a whole. George, whether we're Zooming to talk about the board year or doing a podcast or hanging out in the hospitality suite with a cocktail. It's always awesome chatting with you, and I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, man. Same here. And now I'm going to hand it back over to Jacob. Hey, everyone. Jacob Edenfields here. This month, I'm joined by Conrad Loziak. He is a student, a recent graduate of Ringling, uh, living in Orlando. How's it going, Conrad? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, super. So, Conrad, uh, you recently came off of a win at the National American Advertising Awards for a piece of work that you did. Uh, I hope I'm getting it right. The brand, as you designed it, was Nume. 
New York Moves. Could you talk a little bit uh, for folks who may not have seen it, uh, what that project was and how it came about? Uh, the project, I think, was one of the most uh, interesting ones I worked on for a while. In the class, we were tasked with, I think, research for four weeks and design for three. During the time, I thought it was a little insane to work so much on research, but it definitely uh, made me realize that how valuable it is when you have a good concept from the beginning. Yeah, for sure. So four weeks, can you talk a little bit about like what you explored during that time, how your research process evolved? I looked at why people bike. I didn't want to focus on the obvious things like, oh, it's eco-friendly, it's cost-effective, health-beneficial. Uh, I wanted to look at more of the hidden benefits, which were the 360 panoramic views. It's readily available. And it's fun and adventurous, which is kind of like the biggest part I wanted to really harp on. Um, but off of those three things, I had to come up with a good name. Um, and to symbolize the kind of happiness and joy I was going for, I actually based it off of this kind of internet meme where people would take a photo of a dog that's running really fast and you would only see a blur but you can tell that dog is excited and and happy to be alive so uh but they would always title it with like noom which is just like a funny way to say something's going really fast uh and i was like that's that'd be a, a funny name for uh like a bike brand uh and i looked at it closer and i was like okay well hold on i definitely see like a chance to tie this into New York because it's got the acronym built right into it. Uh, and then I did some messing around and it was one of those things where it just kind of clicked and it would be a sh it would be like a crime not to use it, essentially. I love when something works out like that. You've got um, all of this research and all of this backing. And then the thing that clicks for you is just the funny sounds that people use for saying something's going fast. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I guess the other part of it was it had to be a very reliable brand because I did a lot of actual interviews with my sister and her friends who lived in New York City at the time. And it was the biggest thing was like, well, I just don't want to get on a bike and it breaks or, you know, it's just there, when I get to a bike rack, there's no bikes there. So I backed it up with a kind of very clean, uh, like subway, like Swiss design, like uh, reliable brand because um, it needed to be. It couldn't it couldn't just be like a fun, whimsical everything it needed to have that brain and the heart connected together so that was the other half <laughs> yeah well uh, let's talk about that half because it's the work that won i mean obviously the strategy and the solid backing is is where every good project starts but i mean when i saw the work at the show i mean you had motion graphics you had animated billboards you had applications you had signage you had all of this stuff can you talk a little bit about just uh once you had the name once you had the idea in your head then what oh um well i worked on uh messaging i wanted the messaging to convey that fun happiness that adventurous feeling kind of a little bit of a, a like a, a witty vibe to it obviously wanting to make people talk about it with their friends be like oh like oh I, what did you do how did you get here i, I took a noom like it's it's silly it's weird but like people kind of want to be that uh a part of that brand uh and and that led into kind of creating uh more of a uh, I guess an aesthetic that goes along with it that people could eventually turn into uh, tote bag shirts and of, of like swag and stuff. Um, but most importantly, I did want to have something that you could see just this one tiny bike, the symbol, the brand, the point A to point B that 
people could immediately recognize. And in a real world, I know it'd be really difficult to have the consistent two colored wheels. But if I were to, you know, manufacture the bike, it would have those two colored wheels just just for the sake of keeping the brand consistent and showing it um, through all these touch points that it, it, it can very easily expand even more if needed. Yeah, is in your brand, Mark, you had a really cool convention of the point A to point B connected by a line. And then that line kind of forms the frame of a bike. I thought that was super clever. Thanks. That was actually, I was, um, I think, trying to make, I fit four separate meetings into the bike. One was the bike itself. Two was the word NUM. Three was the acronym for New York Moves. And four was that point A to point B. Uh, and I don't, I am not a, a motion designer by trade. Um, I don't necessarily love doing motion design, but like when I saw the bike and I saw the point A to point B, I was like, I'm going to learn it. <laughs> I'm going to show, I have to show my idea. I can't just show like static images. I need to animate it out and show the text coming on screen with it. And when I do get into animation, it's because I really want to make something move. Yeah, I think that was a smart choice because it definitely demanded it. I mean, it worked so well on the wraparound billboards to have that just to pull the eye. That was a, a well-made choice. Yeah, thank you. I, I honestly was sick of uh, the same poster mock-ups, the same uh, TV ads. Like I, I wanted something new in my portfolio as far as like ways to display. And I was like, what's cooler than Times Square? So I was able to find a, somebody created a video mock-up and I purchased it. I was like, I need this. <laughs> uh, so what else, Conrad, are you up to right now? In Orlando, I've, uh, I spent the past, I think, month working on finishing my portfolio, finalizing it, taking reshoots of projects that just needed better photography. I also took up a few jobs from the school itself that kind of spilled over. I worked on the wood shops uh, brands and illustrations for their tools. I initially made a set of posters for all of the handheld tools, but now I'm just about finished with designing the uh, woodshop manual booklet that talks about the table saws and the belt sanders. It's a lot of fun and uh, I am pushing myself as far as illustration and making a massive piece. But again, it's another piece that I can then put into my portfolio and I honestly can't wait. So that's been eating up most of my time. But the other half of my time is doing a job search and writing lots of cover letters. <laughs> so. Oh, yes. So many cover letters. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, what kinds of places are you uh, looking at? How do you see your career kind of shaping out, Conrad? I mean, I hope I never stop learning, which is why I tend, I don't necessarily like freelance. It's nice to be home and spend time with the family, but I, I do miss that room of creatives that I can kind of get away from the family and, and just hang out and bounce ideas off of other creatives and be in this kind of think tank of a design agency, uh, a branding agency, probably more specifically. But I also do enjoy all the other aspects. Like I don't ever just want to be pinned down to one area. And that's where I think um, a kind of more nimble uh, design firm that could handle illustration, a little bit of animation even, and layout, print, web. I guess I, I get I get bored. <laughs> Um, but that's that's not to say I don't enjoy doing what I do. I, I, I love uh, a challenge. And so that's 
That's what I'm looking for. I mean, I can relate to that. Getting bored with doing the same thing over and over again. It's nice to be able to stretch and try something new. I think I'd noticed that uh, you'd been dabbling in some metal work. Yeah, that actually was, I talked to my advisor and I only needed three credits or three classes and my advisor told me, hey, you, you need to take one more if you want to be full time. And I was like, OK, oh, what do they ha- what, what do they have here? I already had all my electives, so it was literally for just for fun. So I, I found metal fabrication and I said, why not? And I really enjoyed it. It was so it was it was like I told myself I wanted to be taught one more thing before I left college because I felt like I had been taught everything I needed to know up until junior year. And at that point, I was just creating work to better my portfolio. But learning something as complicated as gas welding was, you know, it was it was fun for me to just kind of be thrown at something completely new. And I do appreciate 3D design. I'm not necessarily a 3D modeler in any way, but I know it's important illustration. I do a decent amount of uh, isometric illustration, but just being able to bend the metal with heat and, and, and weld two pieces together, it's kind of a Zen experience that I, my teacher put it that way. And I thought that was really cool, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm like torn because I want to, I want to now pursue that. Um, but I think that'll be something as a hobby for me, uh, when I have my own gas welding studio, if one day in a garage, there you go. Maybe there's a metalwork studio there in Orlando that you can get in plugged in with. Yeah. That also does design. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I'll find it. I'll find it. So let me ask you, Conrad, um, we've found that a lot of times, uh, the people who, spot new trends earliest are emerging designers like you. So are there any trends or uh, conventions that you're following or interested in that are occupying your time when you're not freelancing? As far as trends go, I think there are a lot out there that I see maybe losing steam in a few years, and I tend to just avoid them. Let me ask you then the follow-up question. What are some trends that you think just need to go? That would be equally useful. Oh, ah, stickers. They're nice. <laughs> I I hate to say this, but like I've seen them used for every type of brand. But when people kind of put text or a funny shape on a sticker and skew it a little to the left or the right and slap <laughs> it on top of a poster, I, I, I've i seen that so many times. It's mostly just student work. And, and I, I understand it's it's for like kind of loud, fun campaigns. It fits in that realm. But when people bring it into branding and like, oh, like a, a restaurant versus like, oh, an event that's about speaking your voice, there, there needs to be a time and place for both. And I think people sort of kind of drag it into a more professional sense and it doesn't have a home there. Yeah, I, I can totally see your point. Yeah, I it's again, it's like they they do look nice, I think, in some cases, but it, it's just a matter of if it's being used for everything. Is it anything new or exciting? I, I don't I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Actually, our local club here, we held a Q&A with our, our local judges after our award show, just to give people kind of a peek behind the curtain and their thought process. And one of our judges, Jason, said, have I seen this movie before? And 
this is not that interesting or have I seen this movie before but they've twisted it in some interesting way that would be a silver winning entry and then have I never seen this movie before and I loved every second of it that's what he would consider a gold winning um, American Advertising Awards entry I thought that was a really useful metaphor it kind of ties up to what you're saying of trends in and of themselves aren't very useful because what people are using to evaluate the work is just intrigue, novelty, something brand new that you haven't seen or experienced before. That's a good criteria. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah, keep it in mind. I mean, I've heard different variations on that same theme from a lot of judges, but that I thought was like the really useful metaphor that just stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Right on. Well, uh, Conrad, I'm definitely going to put you in touch with Christopher Bayer. He is the president for the Orlando chapter of AAF. So as you're looking around trying to decide what you want to do and exploring different options for, you know, such a wonderful portfolio and where it can take you as a designer, I think Chris could get you in touch with the community and see how AAF could kind of help plug you in. Oh, awesome. That's that's wonderful to hear. I, I'm learning how important it is to network as my job search continues. So I appreciate that so much. Yeah, no sweat. And it's a, you know, it's a lot more fun when you go with friends. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I've, yeah. When I was uh, a graduate, it was just a normal thing to get involved with your professional organizations for whatever industry. And I think that's less true now. I don't know how much of it has to do with AAF and our outreach on universities or anything. I'm not sure if beyond our awards programs, if that was really ever a thought or consideration when you were at Ringling. I honestly, the awards part of this, I mean, like I, I thought, I thought it was really nice to like take on these awards and, and, and meet people um, at the events because I actually went in person, I think as a plus one, my first two years, I did I wasn't in any of the awards, I just kind of went along because I was in the area and my friends were going my senior friends at the time. But I, I, I do think there is a kind of like, maybe like uh part of it that's like missed out on is like you get all these awards but maybe not so much like the networking that could come with it especially if you're not there in person i do know a couple of friends who who have actually been picked up for jobs uh at these events which is super cool uh, i think that's something that any, any student could benefit from because there is so much hidden talent there and people are hesitant to hire people they can't see they can't interact with so just have a good conversation with before anything even happens. I think it's so valuable, but I, that's one thing I think would totally benefit. Well, we are definitely having an in-person American Advertising Awards Gala for the district this year. Yash Bendayan, our gala chair, was on last month's episode, and he, I quote, said, it will be the best gala you've ever been to. What? I know. If I'm still in Orlando, I'm definitely going <laughs> yeah same here i mean i'll make the drive wherever they're holding it i think it's going to be either in orlando or in tampa i can't recall exactly but i'll be there for sure nice i have family in tampa so i'm, I'm good i'm set all right well conrad i really appreciate you taking the time to come on this episode of af district forecast and good luck with your job search congratulations again on your award-winning work can't wait to see what's next for you Thank you so much. I super appreciate it. as far as interviews go. I've I've definitely botched a handful. Uh, this has been one of my better ones. So I right, thanks for bringing me on. 
We hope you enjoyed the content, news, and interviews of episode two. If you'd like to be interviewed or know someone who should be, let us know at our website, aafdistrict4.org. That wraps up this month's episode of the AAF District Forecast. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time for what's new in District 4.